Hey there, welcome to the Theology Of podcast. I'm Benjamin. And I'm Riker. And we're two college students who love studying scripture and having meaningful biblical conversations. When we think about theology, most of our thoughts probably stay within the four walls of the church. But in doing so, we're really limiting our understanding of God's infinite nature. And so each episode, we'll be tackling an everyday, secular-seeming topic and discussing what the faith has to say about it, both conceptually and practically. So thanks so much for joining us. Make sure to buckle up, keep your hands and feet inside the proverbial vehicle at all times, and enjoy the ride. Let's go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the moment that I'm sure you've all been waiting for, the Theology of Season 2 Finale. Woohoo! We made it! Let's go! Yeah, I know. It's crazy to think that we've made it to episode number 25. That's so incredible. Um, That's insane. Yeah. It's just super humbling for us to have y'all on the other end of this. As our listeners, uh, we have said it many a time, but we really do appreciate you. That's not just um, a cliche that we're using, um, but each and every one of you, uh, your support means the world to us. Benjamin, I'm so thankful for you and for your partnership in this endeavor. Um, I'm thankful to the Lord for even opening this door for us. So all that sappy stuff out of the way. Thank you all. Amen to that. Yeah, all concur on all of that stuff it's been such a cool ride that i did not expect to, to go half the ways that it went and uh just the conversations that we've been able to have and the the people we've been able to connect with over this um and the people who have reached out after listening yeah it's, it's just been it's been such a cool cool learning process for sure hmm. yeah so like we just mentioned Season two finale, we're going to do another The Theology of Etc. If you weren't with us for season one when we did this, uh, first off, if you want, go ahead and check that one out. But basically, the premise of The Theology of Etc. is to take a bunch of topics that we couldn't necessarily fill a whole episode with, though, as I say that, some of these we definitely could. Um, but we're going to take a smaller look at just a couple things and we're gonna have multiple topics that we go over so i'm super excited about it i think we've got a good lineup set up so i'm ready benjamin are you ready i'm so ready let's get into this and i'm just so excited that you're sitting across the table from me and for those of you who have been listening or for a long time or or maybe even just tuned in at the last episode um, we have never actually done an episode in person together We've done this over a, a cool website called Zencaster, who has uh, hosted all of our uh, podcast recordings remotely. And so we've been doing these from two different states for the last 24 episodes. And now on episode 25, we are in the same room, which is super exciting. So not that that changes anything about the uh, content of this episode, but, uh, but it'll still be really good. So let's dive in. So for those of you 
who maybe left us a, a comment or a suggestion through our form that we had you fill out uh, to give us suggestions on topics. Uh, we have narrowed those down to five. And we actually got like, what, like 30, 35 suggestions this time, which was awesome. Um, and we had a, <laughs> we had a lot of time to, to kind of sort through those. And, and uh, we've, we've come out the other end with five of them. And we hope that you like them. Uh, the first is the theology of sleep or sleeping. Uh, what do we do with this topic? And I just, in starting to research it, and that's why I think it was such a cool topic to, to start off with, um, is it's such a big thing that we don't realize is such a big thing, right? Um, because we spend one third, get this, one third of our lives we spend asleep which is absolutely insane. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, but, and, and it's important to, to recognize, like there's kind of a distinction because some people view sleep as just the fuel for the time that we're awake. Um, but I hope after talking about it in this episode, I hope that we recognize that there's so much more to sleeping, that it's way more than just fueling and, and kind of like, re-gearing up for whatever tomorrow should bring, but it's also for uh, experiencing the love of God through rest uh, and, and understanding that we can still delight in his creation even when we are asleep. So it's, it's kind of a weird topic uh, because, you know, we don't really know what goes on when we sleep and we don't, we have no control over that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it'll for sure fuel some really good discussion. Yeah, that's super true. It's really easy to forget how much we do sleep. For some of us, it might be a little less than a third. For some of us, it might be more than a third. But it probably takes up more of our time than all of the other topics that we've talked about. And you're right, there's there's more than what just sits at the surface because sleep has these ideas of rest attached to it, especially when we think about it biblically. Um, but you have the idea of rest, you have the idea of death, of Sabbath, of what's to come. You have so many different ideas that are linked to such a simple seeming topic. And so as we jump into this biblical survey, I think we'll, we'll start to see the way that God has used this to communicate more than we might think. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Starting from the beginning, right? Um, God rests from creation. Uh, and so that ties us all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. But this is an interesting caveat because it's resting, yet God never sleeps? Question mark. Um, and that's something that is more fleshed out in the Old and New Testaments. Uh, but never, there's no like for sure, like underlined saying that. God never lays his head down to sleep uh, in our human terms, yet um, we know through the evidence that we find in, in scripture that that is most certainly too true, that he doesn't sleep in a human sense because he is God. Um, and so there's even more sleep throughout the creation story as, as God puts Adam into a deep slumber in order to create Eve. Uh, and then, like we said, um, Sabbath is the idea that comes out of the creation story as a whole in that seventh day rest idea. 
Uh, we've talked a little bit about rest in, in our episode on home, which was in season one, um, and, and talking about the difference between the day-to-day running about and doing things and then the, the nightly coming home and resting. And so that's where this idea of Sabbath comes into play. Yet from the beginning, we get this difference that God is a being who could still rest, but uh, doesn't necessarily sleep as we as humans do. Yeah, if we define our terms there, if we are thinking about sleep as slipping from consciousness to subconsciousness, then that doesn't fit with our understanding of God, right? Because if God really is infinite, then for him to not be conscious just doesn't make any sense. Right. But we do see this trait of rest that even God can accomplish that speaks into the way that we should rest. Another really, really powerful passage on sleep in the Old Testament is Psalm 127, looking at verses 1 and 2. This is a psalm that I kept coming back to this last semester at college because it's super, super relevant to that season of life and really all seasons of life. Uh, But here's what it says. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. So this, I feel like, shows us that sleep isn't just something that I choose when to do, when not to do, but it's a gift from God, right? God is an agent in it. It's not just all about myself. Mm. Yeah. And we see sleep continually embodied in the human that is Jesus, obviously being fully man. Um, And even at the extreme of Jesus napping in the middle of a hurricane, like that story is just absolutely insane (laughs) of him sleeping through that. But, but uh, it, again, is this gift from God that, that we often overlook. And uh, it is part of being human that, uh, again, is, is something that we daily miss, even as it is our most basic routine of waking and sleeping. Um, hmm. Yeah. Next, after that, Acts 20, verse 9, is another verse about sleep. Here's what it says. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Whoa. Um. So moving on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, so moving on from that one, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll just keep going and uh, get into... First Thessalonians chapter four, verses 14 through 16. Um, and this is actually a very interesting topic. Uh, and it kind of brings back what we were talking about earlier with, with the comparison between sleep and death. Um, the word that's often used in the Old Testament is sheol, and uh, it means into the grave uh, or, or something of that nature. And it's used both to refer to sleep as well as to death. So um, in First Thessalonians, it actually mentions that Uh, We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. 
According to God's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. So, um, yeah, it's talking talking second coming here, uh, but but as another just kind of brief mention of sleep, essentially, and, and how it is a part of just our human life, uh, whether that be a daily sleep or an eternal sleep uh, until the ultimate rising again uh, that we have mentioned here in First Thessalonians. And one note, we recognize that we're going through these super fast, uh, but the reason is because we're trying to cram a whole lot into this episode. Um, so there's definitely more in a biblical survey that we could talk about, uh, but we're going to move right along to the end when we look at the new heavens and the new earth. And here's an interesting question that is definitely in the speculative realm, but I think can still be an interesting topic. Will we sleep in heaven? Hmm. That's a very interesting question. You know, we've talked about before with the uh, the Arcadian Wild, we talked about how there will be no night, right? And sure, there's people that sleep during the day and whatever, but typically you associate the night with sleeping and how in Revelation is talking about there will be no night and Link had talked about there being no gates, right? If you remember, if you've listened to uh, the Arcadian Wild, which is episode six and seven of this season, um, but uh, talking about no night, no gates, which does that mean that people don't sleep? Are we going to feel rested even though we've been awake all the time? Right. I mean, if we see sleep as this refreshing of our weak physical bodies, do we really need that when we're in the presence of God? Hmm. Yeah. Um, and so again, take all of this with a grain of salt, but I think at least for us, a theory that we might have about this question is that we won't sleep, but this idea of rest and Sabbath that's associated with sleep will be constant. So the the same relaxation that you get from sleep will be something that stays forever, and yet we won't have to drift off into this subconscious state anymore because we always get to be fully awake in the presence of the Lord. So take that as you will, but that's our biblical survey for you. Yeah, and there was a, a really good chapter of a, of a great, great book that honestly, and we're hoping to have her on the podcast, maybe in the future, uh, but it was a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary. Uh, it was written by Tish Harrison Warren, and uh, she's just got such an outlook on life, very similar to that of the mission of this podcast, is to find ways and to incorporate the the liturgies um, of our time in, in church into our secular outside of the church walls life. And uh, the last chapter of this book actually deals a lot with sleeping, and it's called Sleeping, uh, Sabbath, Rest, and the Work of God. And uh, I'll read just a little bit of it here. Uh, but if you get a chance, we'll link it in the show notes. It is a phenomenal book. But uh, it says, we need a ritual and a routine to learn to fall asleep. Infants learn by habit over time how to cease fighting sleepiness. A regular bedtime, dim lights, bath time, book time, rocking, allow their brains to carve out a pattern 
or a biochemical path to rest. Without a ritual and a routine, they become hyperactive and often exhibit behavioral problems. Adults aren't much different. I'm certainly not. And if rest is learned through habit and repetition, so is restlessness. These habits of rest or restlessness form us over time. There is a profound connection between the sleep we get in our beds each night and the sacramental rest we know each Sunday in our gathered worship. Both gathered worship and our sleep habits profess our loves, our trusts, and our limits. Both involve discipline and ritual. Both require that we cease relying on our own effort and activity and lean on God for his sufficiency. Both expose our vulnerability and both restore. And I think that's just a beautiful way to, uh, to kind of wrap up this, this idea of the theology of sleep. Is, uh, it's a topic that we could talk for forever about, but it's something that we, even more so than some of these other topics we've talked about in the past, uh, it's something we overlook. And it's some place that, since we have no control over what happens, you know, when we lay our head down on the pillow and close our eyes, um, we don't often think about how God is working through that time. And and it's it's just a reminder of of our humanness, right? Uh, it is it's a reminder that we have to rejuvenate and we have to recharge after a crazy day. And God is always working. Um, Tish Harrison Warren has another quote a little bit later that says, we drop out of consciousness, but the Holy Spirit remains at work. And I think that's just a beautiful thing is, is recognizing how we as humans uh, may overwork ourselves and, and find these habits and restlessness, whereas God wants us to find rest in him and that he is doing the ultimate work within us that we can finally go to bed at night knowing that he is refueling us and refueling us for the days to come. Next up, we have the theology of colors. What, what? Super interesting topic. And the funny thing is, it was mentioned not once, not twice, but three times. So thank you for that suggestion. Uh, we didn't know it would be such a popular topic, but we're excited to look at it. Yeah, we are. So the theology of colors. What in the world does our faith have to say about the colors that are around us. Here's an important note for us to start with. Life is technicolor. It's not monochrome. And it didn't have to be that way, right? That was an intentional choice by God. Right. And the very fact that color exists as a spectrum demonstrates the lavish creativity of God. Yeah. Right? God uses a very full palette. Um, when he doesn't have to. And so even the existence of colors itself teaches us something about God's nature. Yeah, I love that. That's so, and we've we've come upon that realization a few times with a few topics that we've talked about, um, is that this isn't just a thing that was a given. Like this is absolutely 100% uh, the lavish creativity of God, as you put it. Um, and I think it's really important to note as well that, that colors are both functional and fun. Uh, we have, you know, 
warning signs and stop signs that serve a very specific function to let us know that, hey, you're not supposed to drive your car through a red light because it is red. Um, or, you know, stuff like that. We, we have these things that are very functional to us functioning as humans in society. Uh, but also, like, if you have a super funky shirt that you want to show off and it's crazy colors or maybe a super slick pair of pants that are bright yellow. Man, I really hope you don't have a pair of bright yellow pants. <laughs> but if you do, please send a picture to the theology of at outlook.com. Yes, yes, please do. Um, but it's fun, right? You know, it's a way of expressing ourselves. Um, you know, and it's funny that I'm saying this because a lot of my closet is dark colors because that's what I like to wear. But uh, anyway, moving on. Uh, that's a uh, that's an important note, I think, is that it's functional and fun. Exactly. And that's true for all five of our senses, right? Each one of them could be so much more simple, but there's so much diversity uh, in them. And that is a testament, again, to God's lavish creativity. Colors also play an important role in the Bible. And we want to be careful here that we're not overstepping our bounds and making every color symbolic of things that aren't supposed to be in the text. Uh, But they do play a significant role. The Dictionary of Biblical Imagery puts it this way. I think it's helpful. The ancient Hebrews experienced color primarily through nature. Colors suggest to them elements of the physical world. Blue was the color of the sky, green the color of grass and plants, red the color of blood, white the color of wool and snow. These natural associations remain to some extent universal, but have been weakened in modern society, which primarily experiences color through manufactured items of synthetic hues. Hmm. So not only do we have these other cultural differences between us and the Old and New Testament, but even the way we see color is different, right? Because color was something that was a lot more rare back in that time where you couldn't just find a box of crayons with 64 colors and a you know sharpener in the back but it was a lot more limited to your surroundings and so that's so important when the bible does mention color because it makes it so much more impactful um And the cool thing is the place where color shows up the most in the Bible is during divine encounters, right? Think of Hmm. the story of Noah, you know, the, the rainbow that God gives him as a part of his covenant. You also have the tabernacle and the temple, which are these ornate buildings with scarlet and blues and gold all put together. And you also have the 12 gemstones, both in the ephod of the priests and going to Revelation as a part of the New Jerusalem. And so when we read these things, we might think, oh, okay, here's a list of 12 gemstones. That's not super meaningful to us. But to the original audience, to think about the vividness of those colors would have given them a greater appreciation of what's going on in those texts. And so really 
when the Bible does use color, it's something that we should pay attention to. And especially in the Gospels, because, man, just the story of the Gospel is so vivid um, in talking, even at the beginning, tying back to Genesis and the redemption um, that that Jesus brings. We, we talk about lush gardens, right? And we talk about um, how the stain of sin is blacker than black, and the blood of Jesus is crimson and spilt for humanity um and that we are made as white as snow and and it's just such a vivid picture of our life story uh, and the redemption that like i said christ brings to us that i think it's just such a as sparingly as colors are used in the entire bible it is amazing that the gospel of jesus christ is so vivid next one is a doozy and it was also suggested multiple times by multiple listeners uh, and we kind of had to adapt it because it took a lot of forms and we decided on the theology of love and it's very sad that we're only going to get like 10 to 15 minutes to uh to walk through this one and i really hope that we can do a future episode on it but man this is such a big topic and uh, the many forms that it took in suggestions were like dating and relationships and marriage and stuff like that. So uh, we boiled it down to love. Um, and you know, to start off, there is a lot of problems with the word love. Um, John Mark Comer in his book, Loveology actually makes this very evident, like on the second page or something, he says, I love God and I love fish tacos. So there's a problem if we're using the exact same word for those two scenarios. <laughs> um, and so I think, you know, it's it's important to recognize the significance of the word, uh, but also recognize that it is both a noun and a verb. Um, he, he also quotes a little bit later, he says, to some love is tolerance, you know, love your neighbor, etc. cetera. Uh, but the gospels actually say so, so much more that love is both a noun and a verb. It is both a feeling and an action. And in John 3.16, that we get that this is love, that God so loved us that he gave us, you know, we, we, we know the rest of that verse. And so it's just, it's a very interesting word that there's so many different definitions that that come into our one English word, love. Yeah, we use the word love a lot. And sometimes that can lead to problems because with this one word, we're trying to talk about so many different ideas but in hebrew and greek they tend to use multiple different words in describing this idea of love and in english we also have different words that um are related to love but have different nuance but as we're reading scripture it's important to take note of these different words that are being used because they add depth to the passage that might sometimes get sanded over by just the basic word love. I can take, uh, I can take Hebrew if you want to take Greek, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's several words that we encounter in the Hebrew Bible that all come pretty close off the bat. Uh, and the first is that of Raya. And, uh, that's, that's the love you'd have for a friend. 
it, it's a companion, you know, that you'd, you'd feel comfortable doing life together. And, and, you know, you share these things with, with each other and um, you're engaged in community together. This is, this is the love of, of Raya. And um, yeah, it's a very, a very communal um, acquaintance kind of love that, that you'd share for a neighbor. Uh, and then you have the love that is the Hebrew word dod. And dod is is a lot stronger than than raya. It's it, it's a it's a more of a sexual compulsion or attraction. Uh, it's it's what Song of Songs just comes right out of the gate talking about is is dod, and it's a lot deeper and a lot more fiery of a passion uh, of love. You know that that uh, is is more sexual oriented, if you will. Uh, but then there's this word ahava, and ahava, I just think that. John Mark Comer describes it absolutely perfectly. Um, he, he describes it as an unstoppable tidal wave of fierce, unbridled power, so vivid and strong that the only kind of love that will carry a relationship past the early feelings of affection and through a whole life, decades of highs and lows, marriage and family, career and unemployment, suffering and celebration, sickness and health, and well into the epilogue of life. And man, what a what a great description for Ahava and that understanding of, of that deeper Hebrew love that they understand between, you know, people that are gathered together in Jesus's name. Similarly, in Greek, there's four main words that are used for love. You have storge, eros, philia, and agape. And a lot of us have probably heard about the four loves, whether it's through a sermon or C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. Uh, but I think we have to be careful with the way that we treat these words because it's really easy for us, not just in this instance, but in all of life, to use labels as quick thinking that gets rid of the nuance of something. And so it can be easy for us to think agape, God love, and just try to boil the whole thing down to that. And it's true. Agape definitely is used about God's love. Uh, but you also have a passage like Luke eleven forty three, which says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love agape, is the word that's being used there, the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. And so we come to this conundrum, right? Because that doesn't seem like godly love that's being talked about here. Um, but it's actually a really brilliant thing that Luke is doing intentionally, I think, because he's taking this idea and he's subverting it. Um, and he's taking this idea of what, this godly love should be. And he's saying that the Pharisees have twisted it and changed it. So just note that as you think about these, um, we have, we have to be careful and try to let the Bible speak for itself rather than shoving labels on it ourselves. But just as important as it is to talk about Ahava and Agape, it's also important to talk about uh, some of these other types of love that we encounter in the biblical texts. Uh, and one of those is communal love and that idea of uh, that friendship, right? Um, that fellowship and that engagement with other believers. And I think that um, a great verse to kind of model that is, is the verse that we 
that we hear about iron sharpening iron. Um, and it's a very practical yet also hypothetical application of these different types of love and uh, that not all of our love needs to necessarily be agape or ahava, but that in our life we will encounter multiple types of the Hebrew and the Greek words for love. Uh, and all of those are important in one way or another. Um, each of those has their place, but recognizing that the love of Christ is is something so much greater. Whew. That was a very brief overview of something that could be a multi-episode series. Seriously. Um, but hopefully that gives you a couple things to think about. And this is especially one of those cases where this is just supposed to be a launching pad. Um, so we have linked a bunch of sources in the show notes that talk about different aspects of love. Um, and so if you're interested in diving into a certain facet of this topic, I'd highly recommend that you go and check those out. Next up, we have another wonderful suggestion from one of you, the theology of change or transition. Um, again, thank you so much for sending that. And this topic is something that we've touched about a little bit in the episode, The Theology of Seasons, uh, season one, episode three. So if you haven't heard that one already, go ahead and check that episode out. Um, but we're going to build a little bit more off of that as we talk about this idea of transitioning between one thing to another and having one thing end maybe and another thing begin. Because that's something that's relevant throughout our entire lives. Yeah, change and, and transitions, if you, if you will, uh, is really at the core of our being, uh, whether it's good or bad. Uh, it is the innermost transformation of us through the Holy Spirit's work. Um, and it is, again, inevitable. It's something that we all will encounter at some point in our lives, whether that is a move from a house to a different place, um, whether that is graduating from college and going into the real world, uh, whether that is changing a habit that you aren't really fond of, um, or rather, rather that's, uh, you know, something like that, uh, change is absolutely inevitable. Uh, but there was a, a really good source that, uh, I'll link in the description and I'll talk about in just a minute as well. Um, that says nothing that occurs in our lives is beyond God's power to use. And I think that's really important to recognize, especially in this topic of change. And as our world is just ever changing, right? day after day, waking up and seeing new news headlines and, and seeing, um, you know, what's, what's going on today. Change is absolutely inevitable, um, unavoidable, but again, nothing that occurs in our lives is beyond his power to use. Let that one sink in just for a second. Yeah. And change is something that can be scary. Uh, it can be frustrating sometimes, but through Christ, we have 
the redemption of change because the cross is the ultimate change to which our entire faith is built upon. Mm. So that should change, no pun intended, the way that we look at change moving on as we sit in this reality of the now and not yet being redeemed partly and yet waiting the fulfillment of our redemption to come. And in those moments when you are in a season of transition, I think that feeling that you get, it's hard to explain, but if you've been in that sort of situation, you know what I'm talking about. I think this feeling is something that was created by God to point us towards this sacred longing that we all have for something bigger, which C.S. Lewis talks about in The Weight of Glory. But we have this feeling that these things aren't what my ultimate purpose is wrapped up in. There's something to come, a future uh, transition that's going to happen that all of this is foreshadowing. Yeah. Yeah, no, all of that is is a lot to digest. And I think there's a there's a great example that comes from scripture and and this is the source that I was talking about earlier. Um it's it's some writings by Reverend Cecil and I'm going to screw up his last name. Uh Van Nijenhaus, I think is how you pronounce it. Uh but uh he has this interesting analysis of the story of Jacob. And he says, "What if we considered times of transition as more than merely in-between times?" What if we recognize transitions as especially strategic and noteworthy occasions when God chooses to make himself known? The story of Jacob offers a lovely paradigm. The most memorable and most powerful moments of God intruding into Jacob's life occur when Jacob is on the move, experiencing major upheavals in his life. Jacob's dream, in which he sees that the stairway to heaven with angels ascending and descending and the Lord God speaking to him, occurs when he's actually fleeing the land of promise and heading toward his uncle Laban's home for refuge. Utterly alone, Jacob is at an in-between place. And God there makes himself known powerfully and gracefully. During another pivotal moment in Jacob's life, he is confronted by a stranger in the night with whom he wrestles. Once again, he experiences the power and the grace of God and his own frailty when he is in transition. And this time he's fleeing Laban and he's about to come face to face with Esau. But in his fear, Jacob is surprised to come face to face with God first. And it's just, yeah, it's it's a great summation of, of us in our times of transition. Um, we often come face to face with God in these moments of moving about. Um, and, and these are the, the strategic and noteworthy occasions, like you said, when God chooses to make himself known that we often just blow off as uh, some feeling that, uh, that comes about when, when we experience change. So hopefully that, uh, that makes you feel that change is important as, as it is inevitable, like we talked about, but we should look forward to it a lot more than maybe we do already.
All right, we have made it to our fifth and our final little snippet of a theology of episode for the theology of the etc. Part two, and uh, in part one we ended with something fun. We ended with the theology of podcasts, which uh, was you know just a, a little fun one to throw in there. And this one I think is even more fun, <laughs> to be honest. We had no idea where this would this one would lead. Uh, but we came up with some pretty good stuff and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm delaying it too much. We decided on the theology of monsters. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. So what? Yeah, that's a great question. What? What? (laughs) Great question to start off with. What are monsters and how in the world does our faith relate to it? That's a great question. Thank you for asking it. Um, The word monster actually has origins in the Latin word monstrum, which means omen or warning. Richard Beck talks about that in a seven-part blog post that he did about the theology of monsters. It's insane. Yeah. Um, But we, we see even there that monsters are meant to warn us about something. So keep that in mind. Also, when we think about monsters, I think what it really comes down to when trying to define what they are is that monsters are a perversion of God's design, right? They're the fall made palpable. And so Mm. the very fact that we have this aversion to these things shows us that there is this order of how things are supposed to be that is ruined through the monstrous. Yeah. And this was an especially interesting topic to kind of jump into more of the the tangible, like what are some examples of monsters that we've encountered in mythology or um, in, in fantasy stories and, and fiction like that? Um, and so like, I don't know, Cyclops or maybe giants, um, different types of monsters. These are examples of, of what we were talking about with, with the fall made palpable, but this is an example of, of a distorted human, right? Um, or other monsters like Jaws or King Kong or Godzilla. Um, these are examples of distorted animals. And then you know, we get into the weird crossover like werewolves or minotaurs or centaurs or, you know, it. there's they're distorted human animals or human slash animals. I don't know. Um, but all of these examples that we have from, you know, several stories and, and very famous uh, fiction series, uh, we we get these interesting distortions of of humans and animals of, of which God created for good. Another example of this distortion that is really interesting to think about is zombies, right? Stay with me. I know this kind of seems like it's out of left field, but Jonathan Pajau um, had this lecture series that he did uh, because he's an icon carver, um, but he was talking about zombies and postmodernism and popular culture and he mentions that this fascination with zombies that we have in pop culture is this 
distorted version of resurrection that the world has come up with because all humans have this desire for death to not be the end right for life to spring from death but without the true gospel the best that the world can come up with is these mindless bodies that are semi-alive but it's this lonely mob um it, it doesn't fulfill that longing the way that the true resurrection actually does and last certainly not least in our example of monsters is sinful humans right our fallen nature is monstrous as well and we see ever since the fall we have yes this capacity of goodness and beauty because of the image of god but we also have the capacity for fallenness and for being monstrous that we face and that's why we need the gospel and we need the gospel more than ever because as richard beck also says the gospel is the greatest monster story that has ever been told and when i first saw that i was like what what <laughs> uh, but it's true satan is the ultimate monster uh, but jesus came to earth and when Jesus was on earth, he was treated as a monster to crush the ultimate monster. And he did. And, and that's just the greatest monster story ever told and the greatest overcoming story, um, especially with someone who is treated as terribly as, as we know. Yeah. Ever since the beginning, we have the serpent. All the way to the end, we have this dragon. So monsters are a part of the biblical storyline uh, but we see just like you mentioned there benjamin that there's hope right we aren't just trapped as monsters ourselves but we have hope to break free from that and to be redeemed and praise be to god that he did crush the serpent's head so that we might be transformed back into the image of our creator. So there you have it. The Theology of Etc. Part 2. We are so thrilled with how this season has turned out and the awesome ways that God has gotten to work through it. Um, and like always, we are just so thankful for you and for listening to just us kind of having these great conversations um, that, that came out of an idea uh, back a, a couple years ago. And, and it's, it's so awesome to see what this project has turned into ever since then absolutely we don't thank you enough even though it might seem like we overthink you sometimes um, but we are so appreciative of you and we hope that as you go from this season off to your regular life that you would keep it in mind that our faith isn't meant to be compartmentalized but that 
the gospel really should impact every single second of our lives. Um, so our hope isn't that it would stop at these topics, but that now as you go and face different topics, that you would be able to do the very thing that we've been doing, to think about all of this biblically as we seek to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Amen to that. I can't agree with that enough. So as we wrap up this season, we would love to hear from you, uh, whether that's an email to the theology of at outlook.com, our email address, or uh, if you'd like to interact with us on social media, we are on Facebook and Instagram at the theology of, we would love to hear from you. And we uh, will post occasionally uh, just over the summer, just to continue updating you with what's coming next and, and how we're, we're doing. Uh, Riker and I are going to be both working for uh, some ministries over the summer. So stay tuned on our social medias and we'll post a little bit more about that soon. Just as a reminder, we do have a Redbubble sticker shop in case you are interested in getting some The Theology of merch. We would love for you to be repping that on your water bottle or your car or your backpack or wherever you put stickers. Um, we'd love to see a picture if you would send that to us. But other than that, we are, again, so, so thankful for you and so, so thankful for the work that the Lord has done through this project. And we'll see you on the other side. Thanks so much for listening. See you later.